0: I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek.
1: Three million years from Earth, the mining ship Red Dwarf. Its crew, Dave Lister, the last human being alive. Arnold Rimmer, a hologram of his dead bunkmate and a creature who evolved from the ship's cap. Message out. Additional. As the days go by, we face the increasing inevitability that we are alone in a godless, uninhabited, hostile and meaningless universe. Still, you've got to laugh, haven't you? <laughs> in 1991,
0: I was nine. And being nine, I was usually in bed pretty early. The only exception was a Friday evening, and I was given allowance to watch something post-Watershed. It was on these Friday nights on BBC2 that I was introduced to the crew of the mining ship Red Dwarf. At around the same time I had been introduced to comics, and was becoming more and more aware of films and books in sci-fi and horror. I thought these were to be taken serious and be action-packed, so watching a TV sitcom that was based on the premise of making fun of all these tropes, I was blown away. I first came across Red Dwarf at series 4, but managed to work backwards, with reruns and videos. I would watch it over and over until I could quote each episode. As I mentioned in the last show, I was raised on a number of great sitcoms of the 70s and 80s. I got to know all the characters and enjoyed them a great deal, but I was introduced to these by my parents. They were great, but they weren't mine. Red Dwarf was mine. It was the first show that I watched that felt more grown up and my parents weren't interested in. So let's start the journey, traveling three million years into deep space, and find out why a show about the last human, a power-hungry hologram, a narcissistic cat, and a neurotic android came about. Actually, I suppose a good place to start is a summary of what the show is actually about. In the future, we're able to travel to the stars in huge ships, and what do we do when we get into space? We find things to mine and harvest. One such ship involved in this is the mining ship Red Dwarf. Three miles long and staffed by hundreds of crew, and Holly, a super intelligent ship's computer, it is on a mining mission when we are introduced to its two lowliest crew members, maintenance technicians arnold judas rimmer and dave lister the best of enemies and polar opposites rimmer is a chronic failure that yearns for status and the power and the glory that he believes comes with it he has taken and failed the officer's exam numerous times but believes in his heart of hearts that this is the fault of everyone else and not him Lister is a career bum, wanting nothing more than to earn enough money to find a quiet place to live so that he can lie in his hammock and eat sugar puff sandwiches. When it is found that Lister has snuck his pregnant cat aboard, he is punished by being sent to a status chamber for six months. His cat, however, is not found. Whilst Lister is in stasis, the ship experiences a critical incident when the drive plate is not reattached correctly. The ship is flooded with lethal radiation, killing the entire crew and making the majority of the ship a contaminated danger zone for three million years. Having been alone for three million years, Holly's gone a little off balance. However, knowing that the ship is now safe, he brings Lister out of stasis. Lister is a lone man on a three mile long ship in deep, deep space, with the senile computer for company. Actually, he isn't alone. To keep him company, Holly brings back Arnold Rimmer as a hologram, a complete computer-generated being that is, for all intents and purposes, his old frenemy. They are soon accompanied by the sole descendant of Lister's cat. His cat had made its way to the ship's hold, and after three million years of inbreeding and evolution, we are introduced to the cat. A preening, narcissistic creature, these are the crew of the Red Dwarf. After two series of misadventures, they are joined by Crichton, a neurotic service android and the sole survivor of the crashed Nova 5. These four misfits travel through space, scavenging to survive and getting into trouble along the way. Now, knowing the premise of the show, let's jump back to the early 1980s and find out how the mission started. Rob Grant and Doug Naylor were two university dropouts. Found themselves working as writers on Son of Cliché, a sketch show for BBC Radio. While working on this, they created a number of characters, but one started to become a favourite for them. Dave Collins, Space Cadet. He was a loser trapped in deep space with a ship's computer his only companion. The voice of the computer was played by Chris Barry.
2: This is Dave Hollins, Stellar Trader Class D calling Earthcom 7 Beta 7. I'm still alone on the Melissa 5, the others are still dead. (laughs) I'm still 7 trillion light years away from Earth. Yesterday, we hit a space storm, acid rain, fireballs, meteors, radiation. Brightened up in the afternoon, though. <laughs> Hab, the ship's computer tells me I've gone space-crazy through loneliness. Oh, and a giant chicken has stolen both my hats. Dave. What is it, Hab? There's an intruder
3: in the outer rim.
2: Oh, it's not that alien who massacred the crew, is it? If it is, tell him he's not welcome here.
3: <laughs> no, Dave. It's a different form. I have a bioscan scan readout. Skin, hard, impervious exterior. Central nervous system, single spine central. Capabilities, limitless. Function, survival. Oh hell, I don't
2: stand a chance.
3: Height, four inches. Unless maybe I stand on it origin earth earth what is it have it's a biro dave (laughs) a pen
2: have a pen is not a creature
3: oh yes it is dave it's a perfectly developed organism
2: my god you admire it don't you
3: i admire its perfection dave what am i talking about it's just a pen made by man no dave The Earth pens, you know, are a colony from the home planet which spread its spores throughout the universe. They reproduce by cloning themselves in dark, dry, secluded places, usually the back of a sofa. (laughs) The byproduct of the cloning process is very often a fork and a pink comb
2: are you telling me pens are more intelligent than man certainly what smarter than einstein even einstein
3: was bright but it was his pen who was the real genius now wait a minute wait a minute the no, hole. The creature is moving it's in the hole dave moving how when pens are ready to leave earth they excrete their blue spinal fluid into the pocket of their earth servant <laughs> Then, over 48 hours, they produce by symbiosis an atomic rocket fuel and blast off for their mother planet. But what does it want, Hab? What's it doing on the ship? I'll broadcast its emotional scan on your audio spectrum. It wants revenge, Dave. (laughs) Revenge for its clone you chewed to death.
2: Hab! insane. It's trying to get out of the hole, Dave. Lock the portals. On the Uranian Cannon. (laughs) Come on, come
4: on. Okay. Give me visual. Yeah, there he is. Fire, fire, fire. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Calling Earthcom 7-Beta-7. I killed a pen yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel good about it. I feel silly. I don't know whether it was real or whether Hab just made the whole thing up to cure my space madness. Either way, it worked. Because remember that giant chicken I was ranting about? The one I said stole my hats? Well, I caught him this morning and made him get them back. <laughs> this is celebrated Dave Hollands with nothing further to report.
0: As they worked on this show, Rob Grant had aspirations. He wanted to write a sitcom. He just needed to find a subject that he could turn into a full show. While working on Son of Cliché, they met Paul Jackson, who had had a part in creating the BBC sitcom The Young Ones, a successful zany sitcom that was popular in the early 80s. Paul Jackson brought Grant and Naylor on board to work on Three of a Kind, another BBC sketch show. As they worked on the new show, Grant had become more and more certain that he wanted to write a sitcom, and he had landed on an idea. He started pushing the idea of Dave Collins as a sitcom, but Paul Jackson repeatedly advised him to back off the idea, and that TV execs don't like sci-fi. The majority don't get it, and usually it comes with a hefty budget requirement. This did not stop them from writing a script, and sending it to as many people in the industry as possible. It may have been sent to a large number of people, but no one at the time was interested. This may not have turned into work, but that does not mean that they weren't busy. In the mid 80s, they took over Spitting Image, a satirical puppet show which used caricature puppets to make fun of political and celebrity figures in the news at the time. It was while working on this show that they reunited with Chris Barry. He was working on the show doing several of the key voices, including Ronald Reagan.
1: It's great to be here on Saturday anyway. I'm here to answer your question, so fire away, fellows, as I said to the Sixth Fleet yesterday.
4: <laughs> uh, Mr. President, huh? uh, what exactly are you doing over
1: here? Well, to be frank, I'd have to be Italian and sing my way and not have any connections with organized crime. So I think I'm going to be old Ronnie instead.
4: Mr. President, what exactly are you doing over here?
1: Well, sir, let me answer this way. I don't know. <laughs> pretty smart for a guy of 103, huh? <laughs> Next answer, please.
5: Uh, Mr. President, is it true that
1: you have no knowledge of the Iranian arms deal at any stage? I had no knowledge of anything at any stage. <laughs> I'm against terrorists and I won't have anything to do with them. That's why I got Israel to sell them the guns. They <laughs> have to get up pretty late in the morning, fellas, to catch me awake. <laughs> okay. Mr. Robin.
5: Uh, Mr. President, did you know that the profits of the arms deal went to the Contras?
1: Can, can you speak a little softer, please? I can almost hear you. <laughs> you! Over there. Ask me something easy.
4: What's your favorite color? I
1: have never illegally supported the Contras, and the money was not siphoned through CIA bank accounts with my full knowledge. Uh, thank goodness I didn't give anything away. <laughs>
6: Mr.
5: President! Don't you think you're too old to be a president?
1: Uh yellow. Definitely (laughs) yellow. Or or possibly gravy. (sighs) Uh, 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 how is your arsehole? Casper Weinberger's just fine.
0: At around the same time, they also came across Craig Charles, was he was working with Jackson. Craig Charles was a poet and an activist at the time. Things were going well for Grant and Naylor. They had constant work and they were still shipping the sitcom script around the industry. Soon after the boys started on Spitting Image, Paul Jackson was given a job at the BBC Manchester, a satellite office of the BBC's main London hub. It had its own remit to commission and create shows. Jackson's job had some influence over what programming was commissioned. It also happened that there was a portion of budget that had been allocated to an undecided comedy. It has to be acknowledged that there was a level of competition and a small amount of professional hostility between BBC London and BBC Manchester at the time. This drove a desire in Manchester to produce a show that would annoy the main London office, but also have enough success that it could not be cancelled. Jackson contacted Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, asking if the script they had been shipping around for the last several years was still available. Rereading it, he liked it and took it to the other people in charge at BBC Manchester. With a little persuasion, they were sold on the idea, and the odd couple in space was given the go-ahead in 1988. Now, they needed to find the cast. Having finally been given the green light, the two writers decided they did not want to go any further into production without someone giving an outside, objective view on some of the characters. They decided to send a slightly revised version of the script to Craig Charles, asking him to read it and make sure that the character of the cat was not too stereotypical or verging on offensive because of its racial overtones. Not only did he think it was fine, he asked about playing the character of Dave Lister. At first they were not sure he had little acting experience and they were not sure if the BBC would go with it. However, go with it they did. The first crew member was aboard. At this time Chris Barry was looking to break away from just doing voices and find something that would challenge him. Having known both Grant and Naylor for so long, he had known the premise since its early inception and was familiar with the script, so he approached the writers about reading for the part of Rimmer. At first they were not convinced, unsure if he could maintain the intent of the character, but when he auditioned they were blown away. He was the Rimmer they were looking for. It became even more perfect when Charles and Barry met and started reading together, and the chemistry worked. This, however, was not due to them sparking an instant friendship from day one. Far from it. The two were so incredibly different and really did not get on at all. The next spoke added was Norman Lovett as the dim ship's computer Holly. The original intention was for the role to be a voiceover only, but Lovett pushed to have his face on screen. Not surprising for an actor, really, and it paid off as the character was an instant hit with the fans. As mentioned previously, Craig Charles had been considered for the role of the cat. So the character had gone through some development, but when Danny John Jules walked into the auditioning room, it was clear that the cat, as they had envisioned it, had been brought to life. A dancer and a naturally relaxed cool guy, any fear of it being a one-note character were washed away. The main cast were now in place and the go-ahead was given. Filming started and the first episode aired in 1988. The show aired and was a success from the outset. It was inevitable that they were going to get a series too, and as soon as writing on the new series began, discussion quickly turned to the options of adding something new to keep it interesting. However, they had agreed, even before they had finished writing the first series, that they would limit any extra normal elements. After a number of different ideas, they eventually landed and agreed on the idea of a serving robot. For Series 2, the primary cast were all in place, and they were joined in the first episode by said serving robot. Crichton appeared as a guest character in Series 2, Episode 1. Testing the waters, if you will. The series was another success, and Crichton also had been a popular addition.
6: What the smagging hell is going on? Good afternoon, Mr. David, sir. What are these? Your no boxer shorts, Mr. David, sir. No way are these my boxer shorts. Do these bend. <laughs> what have you done to the place? I've done a spot of tidying up. But where is everything? Where's my coffee cup with the mould in it? I threw it away, sir. But I was breeding that mould. His name was Albert. I was trying to get him two foot high. But why, sir? Because. It- Drives Rimmer nuts. And driving Rimmer nuts is what keeps me going. I'm sorry, Mr. David, sir. Look at you. What are you doing? Why are you doing all this? Well, serving makes me happy, sir. But what about you? Don't you ever want to do anything just for yourself? For myself? <laughs> well, that's a bit of a balmy notion, if you don't mind my saying so, sir. Come <laughs> on, oh, there must be something you look forward to. Androids. Androids, everybody needs good
4: androids.
6: That stupid soap opera. Why? Well, because for half an hour a week I can forget I'm me. Androids. What else? Oh, being asleep. Androids and being asleep. <laughs> Sounds like a crazy, fun-packed life you lead there, crying me old son. <laughs> I have strange thoughts when I'm asleep. Yeah, they're called dreams. (laughs) My favourite one is that I'm I'm in a garden. I've never even seen a garden except in books. And I've planted everything and made it grow. It's my garden. And there's no one there but me. Just me and all the things I made live. (gasps) Silly. No, it isn't. Find a planet with an atmosphere and do it. I can't. I'm programmed to serve. But there's no one to save now, Crichton, that's the point. But what about Mr Arnold? I've got to complete Mr Arnold's tasks. <laughs> <laughs> you what? Rimmer gave you all this. But Mr Arnold is my master now. Mr Arnold is in his name. His name's Rimmer. Or <laughs> Smeghead. <Busmaged. laughs> dinosaur breath or molecule mind. And on a very rare occasion when you want to be like really mega polite to him, and we're talking mega polite. In those exceptional circumstances, you can call him arsehole.
0: <laughs> so it was no surprise that the character was elevated to a series regular for series three. The problem was that the original actor, David Ross, was no longer available. So they were forced to recast. They considered many actors and comedians that they knew... Eventually, they all agree that alternative comedian and actor Robert Llewellyn was a perfect fit.
6: Okay, let's try again. What is it? It's a banana. No, it isn't. Try again. What is it? It's a banana. No, it isn't. What is it? It's an... uh, It's an... uh, it's an orange. Go on, say it. It's an orange. This is an orange. It's an... It's an...
7: It's a banana. It's no good, sir. I just can't do it. You can do it. I'm going to teach you how. OK, what's this? It's an apple. No, a... no, no. What is it? Oh, it's no good, sir. I just can't lie. I'm programmed always to tell the truth. I mean, it's easy. Look, an orange, a melon, a female aardvark. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that is just so superb, sir. How do you do that? Especially calling a banana an aardvark. An aardvark isn't even a fruit. <laughs> it's total genius.
6: Let's start again. Sir, my head is spinning. We've been doing this all morning. Frightened, I am going to teach you how to lie and cheat if it's the last thing I do. I want you to be unpleasant, cruel, and sarcastic. It's the only way to break your programming, man. Make you independent. I'm truly grateful,
7: sir. Don't you think I'd love to be deceitful, unpleasant, and offensive? Those are the human qualities I admire the most. (laughs) But I just can't do it. You can? I can't. Look, what's this? No. What is it? Please. Come on, what is it? It's a... It's a... It's a uh, small, off-duty, Czechoslovakian traffic warden. Yes, you did it, you did it! What's this? It's a red and blue striped golfing umbrella. Yes! What's this? It's an apple. No! It's a, it's what a, is it? It's, it's, it's the Bolivian Navy on manoeuvres in the South Pacific. Oh, Crichton.
0: As they put Series 3 together, it became clear that Crichton added something to the show that they had not known was missing. He became a great source of comedy, but more importantly, he was able to provide exposition and move the plot along more convincingly than had been done in the first two series. The show was coming together more and more. The writing was sharp and funny, and the actors were getting on. Even Craig Charles and Chris Barry were softening towards each other. In fact, they were becoming so confident in the roles that the show started to be influenced by the way the actors were off-screen and more than a couple of occasions sections of conversations overheard on set or behind the scenes would be repurposed and end up in the script of a future episode these characters were the core of the show they provided the comedy however one thing remained important the sci-fi elements were being taken serious they knew that while it was fair to poke fun at the characters and put them all through all kinds of situations if they made fun of the elements that the viewers loved they would lose them. They understood that this show was the what if of space sci-fi. What if the Starship Enterprise was crewed by idiots? By the end of Series 2 the show had some of the highest ratings on the channel BBC 2. They were a legitimate mainstream cult success. It was however at this point that the series would suffer its first loss. Before going into Series 3, Norman Lovett left the show to pursue other avenues. It would seem, though, that fortune shines on the successful. Hattie Heyridge had already appeared on the show in the final episode of Series 2, Parallel Universe, as the female version of Holly. Hilly. So, for a period of time, starting on Series 3, Hattie was no longer Hilly, she was now Holly. Are you keeping up?
1: <laughs> Hang on, I'm linking up with their onboard computer.
4: Hello, I'm Hilly.
1: Hello, I'm Holly.
4: Hello, Holly. Hello, Hilly. <laughs> Well, this is a turn-up, isn't it? you better boogie on over and we can sort
1: it out. Right on, sis. <laughs>
4: See ya, hole.
1: See ya, Hill. I'm in there.
0: <laughs> so we are running into series three with two new additions in the form of Crichton and a new Holly. This was also shown in a change in the way the show opened with a new upbeat version of the theme tune played over the clips from the series. In addition to Crichton and Holly, the show introduced the smaller shuttle ship, Starbug, which allowed the crew to visit planets and other ships. Even the inside of Red Dwarf had had a revamp. Finally, Rimmer also got an upgrade. Gone was the regulation crew uniform, and in its place was a uniform that he, is suggested, had designed for himself. The new uniform provided a new source of comedy, but also developed Rimmer's character as a power-hungry man-child. The overhaul, however, jarred a little with the end of Series 2. So to provide some continuity, a Star Wars-style scrawl was added to the first episode of Series 3. There were concerns that the show may have changed too much for fans' liking, and some considered the possibility that this may actually be the end. These fears were unfounded, and in my opinion, Red Dwarf Series 3 is where the show really hits its stride. In fact, I would go so far as to state that Series 3 and 4, taken as a 12-episode block, is the consistently best run on the show. The actors and writers are in a groove and get what the show is, upping the sci-fi without ever losing sight of what really works in the show, the interactions between the main characters. At the time, though, Series 4 hit some bumps in its broadcasting and was not presented as originally intended. The BBC insisted that the series start off with the romantic story of Camille for Valentine's Day in 1991. The Gulf War outbreak also affected the series' running order, as both the anti-war episode Meltdown and the heroic Ace Rimmer's Dimension Jump were both postponed.
6: Whoa! Welcome home, Ace. Bless you,
5: Spanish, old friend. It's good to be home. Well, how's you behave? The lightship? Like a frolicking filly in a harvest time pasture. How you and your boys down on engineering got that crate to break the light barrier, I'll never know. Well, some people might say it's the devilishly brave and handsome guy in the cockpit that did it. Tish, per sure, nonsense. Any old twit can hug the event horizon of a black hole, then loop to loop around a spinning singularity at twice the speed of light, then slam the engines into reverse and blast out of an imploding nebula. It's you and your guys with the magic wrenches down on engineering spanners. You're the ones who break the records you going to this party thing The throng for you tonight, I suppose? Good God, no. Heroes welcomes with 21 gun salutes in front of the entire Admiralty. Send me to the land of nod spanners. I'll be down in the mess for the salt of the earth engineering boys as per usual. See you there at 1900. See you later,
6: Ace. What a guy.
0: When riding a wave of success, the best option is to expand. And that's what they tried to do. Across the pond. Despite the original version having been broadcast on PBS, a pilot episode for an American version was produced with Universal Studios in 1991, the intention being to broadcast on NBC the following year. The show followed the same story as the first episode of the UK version, using American or new actors for most of the main roles. The only exception being Llewellyn, who reprised his role as Crichton. Grant and Naylor were only on board as creators and executive producers, leaving the writing and directing to Americans. Llewellyn, Grant and Naylor travelled to America for the filming of the pilot after production of Series 5 of the UK version had completed. According to Llewellyn and Naylor, the cast were not completely satisfied with the production script. Grant and Naylor stepped in and rewrote portions of the script. Although the cast preferred the rewrite, the script as filmed was closer to the original production version. The pilot episode was completed using the footage from the UK series in the title sequence, although it did not retain the logo or the theme music. During filming, the audience reaction was good and it was believed that the story had been well received. Unfortunately, the studio executives were not happy with the pilot, especially the casting. It was agreed that the project should get another chance with Grant and Naylor in charge. The intention was to shoot a promo video for the show, in a small studio described by the writers as a garage. New cast members were hired for the roles of both Kat and Rimmer. This meant that, unlike the original British series, the cast were now all white. Chris Barry was also approached to play Rimmer in the second pilot, but politely declined. With a much smaller budget and deadline restraints, new scenes were quickly shot and mixed in with the existing footage for the first pilot and UK Series 5 episodes. The idea was to give an idea of the basic plot and character dynamics. The pitch was to use this footage to propose future episodes and remakes of episodes from the original show. Despite the reshoot and recasting the option of the pilot was not picked up. The cast of both the British and American versions criticized the casting of Red Dwarf USA, particularly the part of Lister who is portrayed in the British version as a likeable slob but in the American version was somewhat clean cut. In the 2004 documentary Dwarfing USA, Danny John jules said the only actor who could have successfully portrayed an American lister was John Belushi. The American pilot has been bootlegged and passed around convention circuits for years, but it has never been broadcast on TV in any country. It can now be found on YouTube with a little digging, and for any interested fan, it's actually worth a watch.
7: Sure. First free time, so I just thought I'd pop by to say, Oh. (laughs) It's all right. I'm going to get her back. It's all part of the plan. Oh, what plan? My plan. Me and Christine, living on this farm with two pigs, a sheep, and a cow. I love this picture. It's like everything that's good and pure is in this photograph. Where did you get it? I swiped it.
4: (laughs) Message from the captain. Holly tells me she's detected
6: an unregistered animal somewhere on the ship. All security personnel report to the command room immediately. This is a code red. What kind of cheese-brained
7: imbecile would violate the quarantine procedures? here a minute. (laughs) Watch this. Shelled out two months' pay for this baby. Oh, just to avoid making your bed. <laughs> Quite a testament to your business acumen, sir. <laughs> hey here, Frankie. Come on, Frankenstein. Goodness. <laughs> That's a cat. Listen, I need to ask you a favor. you got to hide him somewhere where Holly can't find him. Ooh. Where did you get it? I got him on shore leave on Titan.
4: Oh. Hey,
7: I had to do it. They eat cats on Titan. <laughs> Saw him through a restaurant window.
4: <laughs> he
7: was sitting on a bed of lettuce under a heat lamp. <laughs> I applaud your sensitivity, sir, but I, I really don't think you're being realistic. What do you mean? Oh, this cat is quite clearly pregnant. He is? I thought it was all the beer I'd been giving him.
0: Back in the UK. The show was still going strong with Series 5 airing in 1992, although the production team was no longer at full strength. Series regular Ed By had agreed to direct another television show, The Full Wax, and so could not return to Series 5. New director Juliet May joined the crew, but found it hard to work with the science fiction elements of the series and left before the series had completed. The remaining episodes were directed by Grant and Naylor, which it has been suggested brings the series to its purest form. After the failure to expand abroad, the BBC wanted to capitalise on the show's popularity at home by getting the next series ready to go as soon as possible. This meant that the writing for Series 6 was rushed. Grant and Naylad hoped to both write and direct Series 6, but the demands of the production schedule meant that this was unfeasible and Andy D'Emony was brought in to direct the series. This did not prevent the two writers from adding new elements and trying new things with the show, though. It was decided to remove Red Dwarf, the ship, from the show. In turn, removing Hattie Hayridge's holly and setting the series entirely on Starbug. In addition to this, during the series, Rimmer also obtained a hard light drive, which effectively gave him a physical presence. The final change was more thematic for the first time in the series history a story arc of sorts was introduced and followed throughout the episodes leading up to the series cliffhanger it aired in early 1993 and was another ratings hit however viewers had to wait four years to get a resolution to the cliffhanger the reason the show took a hiatus was mainly because of the show's third and hardest hitting loss after Series 6, co-creator and writer Rob Grant decided to leave the show to pursue other projects. Doug Naylor decided to continue with the series on his own and build towards the often-discussed movie. The situation was exacerbated by the main cast taking work in other shows while the issues between the writers was being sorted. It was not until 1996 that everything was able to come together again, but more changes were afoot. The BBC had requested an increased episode run and experience on The Rush Series 6 had soured some of the cast on the production process. To help with the expanding episode number, Naylor brought in the help from other writers. Chris Barry, disappointed with the hectic workload of Series 6, only came back for four of the episodes. In order to keep the crew at full strength, it was decided to bring back a character and create a new dynamic to the show. Christine Kachansky was Lister's lost love, the one that had gotten away. With series seven, he would be given another chance. Kachansky had previously been played by Claire Grogan. However, being elevated to a series regular, the decision was taken to go to a slightly different way, and she was now being played by Chloe Annette. The introduction of this love interest provided new story and comedy potential, especially in the dynamics between Lister and Kachansky. And Lister and the ever loyal but somewhat jealous Crichton. Changes to the show itself were also evident with the mix of science fiction and sitcom episodes being stronger. This was an attempt by Naylor to move away from the monster of the week format that he felt series six suffered from. Ed By also returned and the studio audience was now removed from the series and much like feature films the episodes were mostly shot using one camera. Episodes were still videotaped but were then just digitally processed to look like film adding sheen and improving the look of the show's quality. The live audience may have been removed from the actual recording, but a laughter track was recorded at a later date by screening the episodes to an audience. The cliffhanger from the previous series was resolved in the usual Red Dwarf manner, with a quick gobbledygook explanation highlighting how daft the situation is and then moving straight along on with the new series. The fans had been waiting for Red Dwarf for years and they lapped it up.
6: and destroyed everything on board ship, including the time drive, which meant there was no time drive for them to have in the future to bring back into the past to destroy the future of their past selves in the present. Put simply, by killing us, they kill themselves, because once we were dead, it was impossible for us to become them in the future and return in time to kill ourselves in the past, even though it was the present. Oh, oh. Oh.
7: Meg. have you been trying to explain about our future selves again, sir? I just thought I'd give it one more go.
6: That's a third camera this week. The machines just can't take it, sir. But I'm only trying to explain why Starbuck's damaged despite the timeline being erased. Because this reality is unstable, and anomalies have merged from both dimensions to cope with the paradox. Garbled, confusing, and quite frankly duller
7: than an in-flight magazine produced by Air Belgium. Now just state our position and explain we're down
6: on supplies. All right. All right.
0: The show looked fresh and current. However, this was also one of the main problems with the series. The show had also done best when it was lower budget, poking gentle fun at the shows it was based around. With an upgrade in quality, it felt, at least in my opinion, like it had sold out and just become one of those shows. I wasn't the only one that thought this, and it took two years for the show to return again for Series 8 in 1999. The show had changed the look and feel for Series 7 so Naylor decided to return the show to its roots for the new series. Writing the episode himself, Naylor resurrected the original Red Dwarf crew along with Holly, again being played by Norman Lovett. And Chris Barry also returned as Rimmer. In addition to this, the series moved back to being filmed in front of a live studio audience. The characters spend the series in prison, again changing the format and maintaining the level of special effects. There are a couple of episodes that are fun, but overall this series feels overly busy and too removed from its core concept. This series ended on a cliffhanger, and again it was left hanging, as it would not be resolved for ten years. But we will not be covering that. We're going to draw a line under it with the end of the century, having covered the series' best years. It has come back, and there have been several new series. I would say these have been of varying quality. So, having covered the history, let's go into why I love the show. As a kid, I was exposed to genre and sci-fi shows. I loved Ghostbusters, Transformers and other cartoons like it. I did also see some of the original Star Trek episodes and films, as well as the British tentpole Doctor Who. I was a growing fan of anything sci-fi. However, still being young, I was not aware of the many different shows, films, books and comics that existed. They would all come later. Having seen what little I had, I had limited knowledge of what could be done with the genre. So when I first watched Red Dwarf, I was amazed that it was possible to do a comedy show about a sci-fi concept. I loved sitcom comedies, and I was a growing sci-fi fan. The show took the two elements I was starting to love and mashed them together. It was perfect. Some of the concepts that I used throughout the show could be lifted into a straight sci-fi show and work just as well. For example... Being transported to a parallel universe which is running backwards, a prison facility which contains an area where any criminal act is visited upon the criminal, landing on a planet on which a war is being fought between two factions of robots that have broken their programming, or meeting an alternate version of you from a different dimension. I could easily imagine the Doctor or Captain Picard dealing with any of these situations. The point is that these are strong, imaginative sci-fi concepts, not just throwaway ideas to make fun of. In fact, I would have loved and still would love to see a crossover between the boys from Red Dwarf and one of the other great sci-fi icons. How would the crew of the Big Red One deal with the man in the little blue box? They were both BBC at one point. It could have happened, and I'm sure that it would have been awesome. Titan Comics, IDW... It could still make this happen on a comic page. So the concept is strong, but as is always the case, if the writing and the cast were not strong, the concept would fall apart. Luckily, the cast are spot on. For a show produced and broadcast by the BBC in the late 80s, it has a diverse cast that are all playing to their strengths. As I have already mentioned, this is a cast that fully embodies the characters. I cannot imagine anybody else playing them, from the beginning, they understood who each of these were and how they fitted in and interacted in this world. I always associated with Dave Lister. Pardon me. I always associated with Dave Lister, the slob with a cart of gold. Despite being a slovenly space bum, I always felt and still do feel that he embodies some of the best aspects of what being human can be. Okay, he isn't cultured, highly educated or even washed most of the time but he isn't judgmental will stand by the people he respects has the heart of a romantic and understands the need to grasp the grey areas of life he may appear to be a shaven monkey stuffed into clothes that even a homeless person with no sense of smell would reject but he has also become a complex and interesting character
6: Something smells good what is it it's me <laughs> i love this- Five minutes away from the greatest meal of your life, man. So set your taste buds on death. Com 3. Yeah, you've really made an effort here. Where'd you get all this stuff? I just got sick and tired of using plastic knives and forks, man. So to the medical unit and nick some gear. This is a scalpel. <laughs> I'm supposed to cut my food with a scalpel? Something that's been inside someone's guts? It's all been cleaned. It's all been washed. It's clean. Something that long ago in history may well have performed a certain popular Jewish operation.
4: <laughs> I'm supposed to eat with
6: this <laughs> get the onion salads out of the fridge. Embryo refrigeration unit! How many times? It's clean, it's been cleaned. Onion salad onion salads. And in the kidney bowls. Next to the colostomy bag with the chili sauce in it. <laughs> <laughs> we go. Go! A little bit of extra class, and where does it
4: get you? Mm, very
0: cheeky. The same level of complexity can also be identified with Arnold Judas Rimmer. Up front, he is an arrogant, power-hungry coward with an inferiority complex. However, in the hands of Chris Barry, we get to know and appreciate, if not completely like, a man that has always been at the back of the queue. The runt of five brothers with parents that forgot he existed most of the time. Struggling to find the path that will make him stand out and be respected. Resenting the world around him for not appreciating the talents he believes he has. While Lister isn't looking for approval and finds enjoyment in the little things, he manages to grow in areas that are not mainstream. Rimmer, on the other hand, only ever wants success and glory from a mainstream career.
5: Gentlemen, the fascists have fallen. Oh, may I untie them now, sir? Oh. Rejoice, we conquer. Victory on Waxworld.
6: It's VW day. <laughs> so it's took the HQ. Wiped them all out. To a droid. It's true, all melted. And what about Arnie's army? Yeah, how many of them made it back?
5: There are always casualties in war, gentlemen. Otherwise it wouldn't be war. It'd just be a rather nasty argument with lots of pushing and shoving. <laughs> how many survived? Well, we haven't had time to make a full, official estimate. But at a rough guess, and obviously this is subject to alteration pending information updates, roundabout none of them.
6: So you wiped out the entire population of this planet? You make it sound so
5: negative, Lister. Don't you see? The deranged menace that once threatened this world is vanquished.
6: No, it isn't, pal. You're still here. (laughs) I brought about peace. Peace, freedom and democracy. Yeah, Rimmer, right. Absolutely. Now, all the corpses that litter that battlefield can just lie there, safe in the knowledge that they snuffed it under a flag of peace and can now happily decompose in a land of freedom. You smaghead. Really is no pleasing some people, isn't it? Well, (laughs) at least we got the matter paddle back.
5: Well, there's nothing to stay here for. Let's get back. Well, shouldn't we go out onto the battlefield
7: and bask in the glow of victory? Polly, give me his light, B.
6: See you, Rimmer. Sir, what are you thinking of? It's okay. He'll come out in a couple of
4: days. (laughs) (laughs) We've been through
6: what he's put us through. Does does anyone fancy a vindaloo?
0: (laughs) At first class, these are just the odd couple. One clean, the other dirty. One relaxed, the other uptight. One likes vindaloo-covered frosties. The other starched shirts and well-ironed trousers. It could have ended there and the jokes would have run thin very quickly, however with the writing from Rob Grant and Doug Naylor over the series we get two complex individuals that are forced to cope with some of the most dire and bizarre circumstances, clinging to anything just to stay sane. In many cases that could have been enough but they are supported by the beyond excellent Danny John Jules as the ever cool cat. While adding depth to Lister and Rimmer added more to the show and the characters, keeping the cat exactly what he was could not have been done better or more stylishly than by Danny John Jules. He is a little one-note, but that is why the character in this situation works. His naivete and dimness acts as a sunnier side to the potential depression that Lister and Rimmer could slide into. Finally, the boys are joined by the service droid Crichton. Another character that could have been one-note and perfunctory. In the hands of Grant, Naylor and Robert Llewellyn, he becomes so much more. The Mr Spock at the ship. He can spout any science nonsense needed to provide a get-out situation, and it's easy to accept. Further to this, though, Crichton is a funnel through which we get a better understanding of the human condition. An android that wants so much to break his programming and to be human, learning to love, lie and understand friendship. The show was fun before Crichton joined the crew, but it becomes deeper, funnier, and stronger when he is on board.
7: Is it just me, or is that cockroach
5: shuffling too loudly? Crichton, it's called a hangover. Don't panic.
6: What on a mining ship, three million years into deep space, can someone explain to me where the smagger got this traffic going? (laughs) It's not a good night unless you get a traffic cone. It's the policewoman's helmet and the suspenders I don't
7: understand. In a way, I feel somewhat disturbed by this turn of events. It is written in the electronic Bible that it is not possible for an android to enjoy itself. Not until the afterlife. yet, last night, I quite clearly approached a state that could be approximated to enjoyment. Last night, for the first time in my life, I lived. Crichton is 10 to 7. One night. It's not enough. I want more.
6: Can't we override your order to system?
7: That's not the problem. What is the problem? I thought you understood. It's a service contract. Uh, my termination was triggered by the impending arrival of my replacement. What replacement? The new model. The latest upgrade. If I don't terminate myself, he's under orders to do it for me. Well, no problem, Bob. We'll just... Got the wrong address, no, no, you don't understand. He won't take no for an answer. It's the only circumstance under which an android
0: is There we have it. This is a well-written sci-fi show with a great cast. I go back to this show over and over again, and I constantly enjoy it and find it funny. Part of that may be an element of nostalgia. I came across it at a time when it fit perfectly into what my young brain was looking for. Aside from that, this show still stands up as a great sitcom. As far as I am concerned, it can be listed against any of the sitcoms that so many people talk about as greats. Blackadder, Faulty Towers, or Only Fools and Horses. In this podcast so far, I have covered horror films, professional wrestling and comics, but this is the first time that I have touched on sci-fi. I will be coming back to the subject in the future, but I am glad that this has been the show that I have started with. It means a lot to me, and I am hoping that if you have watched this show, this episode will make you go back and revisit it. Or if you've never seen it, please track it down and check it out. I'm sure you will not regret it. Okay, well, thank you for taking this journey with me, delving into deep space and taking on the sci-fi comedy Red Dwarf. I've really enjoyed researching this show and putting the clips together, and I do apologise if it's a little clip-heavy, but uh, I got carried away. So... Let me know if you've enjoyed this. Let me know if you want to talk about this show or any of the sitcom or any of the comedy uh, or if you should come back and do this again. I'll be really fascinated to find out. So if you want to find me, I am on Twitter uh, at 20thCenturyGeek and also if you want to email me it's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com I am also on Facebook and do the same and on Tumblr and Instagram and relatively easy to find, to be perfectly honest. Okay, so again thank you very much. Uh, next month is going to be lost comics or underrated comics or forgotten comics and I'm going to be talking to the uh, the guys from Xenozoic uh, Xenophiles podcast about this comic Xenozoic Tales and I'm also going to be going back to Super Shakes and the boys from the comic shop will uh, be joining me for a chat about their favourite comics that don't, they don't feel get enough attention Okay, see you soon and thanks very much